0: Joshua chapter 3. We're going to be looking just at the first five verses of this chapter. And this is the chapter where they finally cross over the Jordan. Uh, This thing to which we've been building for several weeks now, this thing to which we've been looking forward to, although we haven't been looking forward to it nearly as much as, of course, the Israelites were at that time, but we're going to delay it just a little bit longer and get to that portion next week, but lay some groundwork. And in the first five verses, there are some rich lessons for us to glean. And so let's just read those verses. Joshua chapter three, starting in verse one, it says, then Joshua rose early in the morning and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would speak to us corporately as a church, as a body that you have placed here, that you've ordained for this moment in history, and that you would speak to us individually as your children, whose hairs you've numbered every one of, with whom's comings and goings you are infinitely and intimately concerned. Lord, you know our fears, our hopes, our dreams, our desires, you know our past. You know our future. And so we come before you right now, the living God, in a very real and even tangible way. And we say, God, speak to us. You are our God. You are God in heaven and you are God on earth and there is none like you. And we are your people. We are your sheep and we want to be led by you, Lord. And so come and instruct us now in Your Word. We ask for an anointing upon the teaching of Your Word. Lord, that every word that comes from these lips would be from You. And that our hearts would be laid bare before You, ready to receive. Lord, that pride would be put down in this place. That we would have humble spirits so as to receive the Word implanted. And that the Word would go deep into the soil of our hearts and that it would bear fruit thirty, sixty, a hundredfold. Holy Spirit, as the word is preached, that you would break up the fallow ground in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit, you would bring to mind and to remembrance areas of our life that you want to deal with. Areas where you want to encourage us and strengthen us and firm us up. Other areas where you want to break us down and purge things out. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come. We give you permission. No, more than that, we beg you, Holy Spirit, to come and to speak to us. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there are three basic things that we see in this text of Joshua chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. We see that there is the waiting, and then there is the watching, and then there is the washing. The waiting, the watching, and the washing, and we're going to talk about those three things, but it's important for us to remind ourselves that Joshua is a book about the victory of faith and the glory that comes to God when his people trust and obey him. It is a book about the victory of faith and the glory that comes to God when his people trust him and obey him. And here's a profound statement that I read this week from Warren Wiersbe. He said, in the Christian life, you are either an overcomer or you are overcome. In the Christian life, either you're an overcomer or you are overcome by circumstances, by the flesh, by the world, by the schemes of the enemy. You're either more than a conqueror in those things or you're overcome by those things. It's important to realize this morning that God did not save us that we might be trophies of grace or statues put on exhibition. He saved us that we might be soldiers who move forward under His lead and take the land. He saved us that we might experience the fullness of life in Christ, the abundant life as Jesus Christ termed it. Moses said it perfectly in Deuteronomy 6.23 concerning the exodus and then the entry into the land. He said, God brought us out that He might bring us in. You see, it doesn't end at the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. The story continues with the children of Israel going into Canaan. And too many Christians today have the mistaken idea that salvation is all that is involved in the Christian's life. That coming out of Egypt is all that is necessary, all the Lord has for us. Now, coming out of Egypt in the Old Testament is analogous to us coming out of sin and death in the world and into the kingdom of the beloved Son. It's analogous of salvation. And so many Christians stop there. I'm saved. I'm not going to hell. I, I, I prayed the prayer and I made Jesus my Lord and Savior or at least my Savior. If not my Lord... And now isn't that enough? But that's not the picture that we get in the Bible. The picture that we get in the Bible is the exodus was part of it. But entering into the land of the Canaan was the fullness of it. And too many Christians just leave Egypt and call it quits right there. And they settle. But we're to lay hold of the fullness of life in Christ. Again, Ephesians 1.3 says that God has for us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we're reminded of the fact that so often God is more willing to bless us than we're willing to be blessed. And that if He were to reveal to us all the good things He has for us, we, we couldn't even fathom the fullness of it all. And so both in our personal lives and in our ministries, there is much of the land that is yet to be possessed. And right smack dab in the middle of the book of Joshua when we get to chapter 13, he'll tell that to the children of Israel. He'll say there remains very much land yet to be possessed and encourage them to go on. And that is what the book of Joshua is about. It is about going on into the promises of God, entering into the fullness of life in Christ. The book of Hebrews has the same theme, going on continuing, moving, growing, not getting stagnant, not remaining, and not digging in our heels and not backsliding, but moving ahead in our life with Christ. And the only way to move ahead is by faith. Now last week we had that tremendous story of faith from the life of Rahab. And I want you to recall the simplicity of Rahab's faith. It was very simple. Rahab heard what the Lord had done and who he was. Rahab believed the report and she acted accordingly. She heard, she believed, and she acted. Faith is just that simple. Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. She heard what the Lord had done and who he was. She believed it. And her belief had an outflow of action. She acted according to what she believed. And really, it's what we do that is a test of what we believe. It's not what you say that shows what you believe. That's lip service. That's rhetoric. What you do is what you believe. And we'll remember that she was in the hall of faith. That she was uh, uh, given in James chapter 2 as having exemplary living faith. And then she ends up in the genealogy of Christ. And it was just that simple. She heard, she believed, and she acted. But so often we get caught up in a place of unbelief. Now unbelief says, let's go back or let's stay where it's comfortable. Unbelief is that story that we had about the Gadites and the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh who chose to settle on the east side of the Jordan River, not wanting to go into the fullness of the land of Canaan and receive all the promises. That was a lack of faith. That, That was unbelief that said, let's settle, let's stay, this is safe, this is comfortable. Isn't this enough? My dad told me something when I was growing up. It's never left me. Resonates in my head almost daily. It was in the context of making surfboards. He was teaching me to to shape surfboards, which my dad taught me to do. And, and uh, he talked to, he was talking about, you know, always discovering and, and designing. And he said to me, the moment you're satisfied, you're done. He's talking about surfboards. I should always be pushing ahead in surfboard design and what I could do with my hands and how that board could perform. He said, the moment you become satisfied, you're done. And so it is, in a sense, in Christianity. The moment you become satisfied and say, well, this is good enough. And, and I have enough of the Lord, and, and I, I'm satisfied right here, and I want to stay right here. You're done, so to speak. You, you've settled. You're like the Reubenites, and the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And when the enemy comes, the Assyrians in 722 BC, when the enemy comes, you're the first to fall. And they never return to that place of comfort again. It was a place of disobedience. It was a place of compromise. Now, there is a sense in which we are satisfied by the Lord. Amen? We are satisfied by the Lord. But it's an interesting thing with the Lord. That when we drink of the Lord, He both satisfies us and makes us thirsty for more. He both satiates us and makes us hungry for more. You know what I mean? And so if you're really pursuing hard after the Lord, you're going to be satisfied and filled and overflowing, but you're going to be wanting more. That's moving ahead in the Lord. That's what it looks like. And that's what faith says. Faith says, let's go forward to where God is working. Let's move ahead. I I read a book. um, I'll withhold the title and the author because I don't agree with most of what he writes. But this was a great quote. Uh, I'll, I'll quote it very loosely. He basically said, it is the task of every generation to discover where and how the Holy Spirit is moving and go there. It's a task of every generation to discover where and how the Holy Spirit is moving and go there. And so it is in our individual lives. We've got to be asking the question, Lord, what are you doing? How are you moving? Where are you moving? In what ways are you moving? And Lord, I want to be there. I want to get myself in the flow of your Holy Spirit. I I, I want to be in that orchestra. I want to be in symphony with your Holy Spirit. And, And so faith says, let's go to where the Lord is moving. Unbelief says, let's settle right here where he once did. Faith says, no, let's go ahead and take the fullness. And an interesting statement is this. Faith is not so much believing in spite of evidence as it is obeying in spite of consequences. Faith is not so much believing in spite of evidence as it is obeying in spite of consequences. This is what Rahab did. You know, she she, 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 she she hid the spies from the king, even though there might have been great consequences of that, because she knew these were God's people at God's time. And, and so she obeyed the Lord and she moved forward in that thing, even though she knew there might be consequences. And, and usually obedience is not that easy, you know what I mean? It's usually not the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance yields a crooked life. That's why you see a river as it's going through a valley and it looks, you know, kind of meanders and it goes this way and the other because when the water is initially cutting its way through the landscape, it it naturally finds a path of least resistance. And if it comes to a place of resistance, then it turns away and finds an easier route. And then it finds an easier route. And so it becomes this crooked thing down the valley. And so our lives, if we're always looking for the path of least resistance. But intuitively in our sinful nature, we do that. We don't like conflict, we don't like resistance, we like comfort, and so when we come to those hard places, which is often the place where the Lord would have us be, we then squirm out of that and backpedal and sidestep, and and, and we get this crooked walk, because we're skirting around the issues. And brothers and sisters, we got issues. We've got more issues than a magazine stand. We got issues for days. The Lord wants to deal with those, and that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. That's where faith becomes real, is when we obey in spite of consequences. Think about the martyrs throughout history. Great consequences for their obedience. Think about the disciples as they stood before the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts. And the rulers of Israel, who had all the authority in the land, the rulers of Israel, said, we don't want you to talk about Jesus anymore, or there's going to be consequences. And they said, you know what? We've got to obey God. We are not going to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And there are consequences for that. But the greatest consequence or the greatest yield of that was that they found themselves smack dab in the will of God. And that's how you find yourself in the will of God, is by obeying God. We make it so complicated, you know, we want to divine it in some way. And and what's the will of God? And how do I discover the will of God? And I don't know. And something weird and something strange. And let me have someone tell me, listen, obey the Lord. And you will find yourself in the will of God. It's that simple. Obey Him in the little things and in the big things. In the seasons of life and in the moments of life. Obey the Lord and you will find yourself in the will of God. Disobey the Lord and you'll find yourself outside the will of God. It's really that simple. Now thankfully God is bigger than our mistakes. Amen? He's bigger than our mistakes. You blow it, He'll take you back, He'll bring you back in, He'll get you on track just whenever you say, Help me, Lord. He's good like that. The best way I've discovered and what the Bible teaches is to be in the will of God is to obey the word of God. And in Hebrews chapter 11, all those great stories of faith, all those men and women, they're in there because they did something as a result of what they believed. They're in there because they did something as a result of what they believed. Because he believed God, Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees and headed for the promised land. Because he believed God, Moses defied Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and led the children out of Egypt. Because he believed God, Gideon was able to defeat the Midianites with a pared down small army. They are in the hall of faith because they did something according to what they believed. And so their actions proved their faith. That's why it says in James 2.26, and we spoke about it last week. That our faith is to be living, is to be active. And the faith apart from works is dead. And 1 John 5.4 says this, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And So faith is to be active, it's to be an outflow of what we believe. And faith is a proper response to who God is and what God has done. That's a fairly good working definition for us. Faith is a proper response to who God is and what God has done. Now in chapter one of the book, we have God reveal his plan. Mo is dead. He's going to raise Joshua up as a leader and he's going to bring the people into the land. Now in Joshua chapter two, we get the continuation of that project from God's perspective. And that is the Rahab project. That is where he goes in to rescue this prostitute. That is the beginning of a move of God from the perspective of God. We see there in chapter 2, as we spoke of last week, the priority of God. That it's his grace and his love and mercy and saving people. We see there the possibilities of a life in God. That This prostitute who is despised and dejected and disassociated in every way because she simply heard and believed and acted had great faith and god used her life greatly and and then we see the promises of god that he promises to be faithful and bring us into the land and deliver us fully and so that that's the plan of god unfolding from god's perspective but here now in chapter three we have the plan of god unfolding from the people's perspective from israel's perspective And, and god is on the move but again faith requires a response to what god is doing And so what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to wait, they're going to have to watch, and they're going to have to wash. They're going to wait, they're going to watch, and they're going to wash. And before we get to that portion, I just want to point out something to you, very profound for you, and I That I hope will be an encouragement at the beginning of verse 1. At the beginning of verse 1, it says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning. You see, there was a definite, tangible responsiveness on the part of Joshua to what the Lord was doing. It was not in his mind a time to sleep or slumber, and nor is it today at this moment in history, for the Lord is coming soon. He knew the Lord is on the move. God has brought us to this place, and God is going to take us further. This is not a time to sleep and slumber and rest and fold the hands. He knew it was a time for action, and so what we see happening in this life of this man of God is that he got up early in the morning, and it's very interesting that the Holy Spirit takes note of that, because you understand that in the Old Testament, we have thousands of years unfolding. I mean, there's whole gaps of hundreds of years where nothing is told to us. It doesn't give us every detail, the people of Israel, over thousands of years, duh. That book could be bigger than war and peace. That'd be the biggest book in the world. But what the Holy Spirit does include is profound. And the Holy Spirit chose to include, and Joshua got up early in the morning. And you know what? The Holy Spirit tells us that again in chapter 6, verse 12. And the Holy Spirit tells us that again about Joshua in chapter 7, verse 16. And the Holy Spirit tells us that once again about Joshua in chapter 8, verse 10. There is something the Holy Spirit was communicating about the responsiveness of this man, Yehoshua, to what the Lord was doing. He got up early in the morning. Now, it doesn't say expressly what Joshua was doing, but but we could take a pretty good guess at what Joshua was doing. I bet you what he was doing was chapter 1, verse 8. If you look at chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord says to Joshua, this book of the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that you have on your lap, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. God gave him the recipe for success and prosperity in the land. And Joshua is now the leader of about two and a half million people. And he's got the shoes of Mo to fill. And so Josh says, what in the world do I do? Well, the Lord told me what to do. The Lord said, meditate on my word and be very careful to obey it. And so I would suggest to you that Joshua got up early in the morning to read his Bible. I think that is a very reasonable guess at what he was doing at this time, that he got up early in the morning to seek the Lord. Now, you guys have been reading the one-year Bible along with us. You've been reading Leviticus, huh? Wow. Wow. Can you imagine if the word of the Lord to us was, be very careful to observe every word in it. Don't turn to the right or the left. I mean, Joshua was reading Leviticus going, oy vey, Lord, help me. This is so much. He was up early in the morning. When you read that book, doesn't it make you appreciate Jesus Christ? That he fulfilled every one of those sacrifices, every one of those requirements Jesus Christ fulfilled for us so that we are no longer under the burden of the law, but we are under grace. Don't you love that? But Joshua wasn't under grace, man. He was under the law. And the Lord said, you obey and you will have success. And so I'm telling you people, Joshua got up early in the morning. Now, you and I now have the fullness of those things in Christ Jesus. So our motivation to get up early in the morning and seek the Lord shouldn't be less. It should be greater. Joshua only saw dimly. He only had the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. We got the whole book. There should be even a greater motivation for us to get up early in the morning and seek the Lord. When we do this, we join the company of people like Joshua, Moses, David, Hezekiah, and Jesus. In the Bible, all of these great men are spoken of Uh, is getting up early in the morning. Moses got up early in the morning in Exodus 24 to build an altar. So he got up early in the morning to worship the Lord. In Exodus 34, he got up early in the morning to go to Mount Sinai. So he got up early in the morning to be with the Lord. David the psalmist in Psalm 119 got up early to play his instrument and sing praises unto the Lord. He awoke before dawn to worship the Lord. Hezekiah got up early in the morning in 2 Chronicles 29 to sacrifice to the Lord. And Jesus, I mean, if Jesus got up before dawn and sought the Father, is there a clue in that for you and I? He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who we are to imitate. We are to become imitators of God. He is God in the flesh. If Jesus, in the wisdom of God... Saw fit to get alone with a father before dawn. It might seem that there's an itsy bitsy little teeny weeny hint in scripture for you and I. That there is some value in that. Warren Wiersbe says the people God uses and blesses know how to discipline their bodies so that they can give themselves to the Lord in the early morning hours it's kind of the idea of bringing our first fruits to the Lord. You guys have been reading about this in the Old Testament. You're supposed to bring your first fruits to the Lord for sacrifice. You don't bring the leftovers. You don't bring the leftovers. You bring the first and the best to the Lord. Now, so often Christians give the leftovers to the Lord. If I've got any energy left right before I go to bed, I might maybe, you know, pray for a minute. Or if I get some time during the day, I might seek the Lord. Whereas the biblical model is bring the first fruits to the Lord. Bring our best before the Lord. Now, some of you, because I see your little faces, are saying right now, my fruit is not good in the morning. That is not my best to bring before the Lord. And I understand that, and believe me, the Lord understands that. And we are under grace. We are not under the law. And the Lord himself is the one who wired you. And if the mornings don't work for you, that doesn't mean that you'll be any less spiritual, that you'll never grow in any way. It just means, okay, but, but then when? Okay, fine. You prefer to, fine. Morning is not happy, good. Okay, fine. Don't do, but When? When are you bringing your best before him? Not the leftovers. When are you bringing your best before him? The great men of the Bible sought the Lord before anything else and the evidence of their lives, the so fruit of their life, is a testimony to that. And so it's been throughout history. If you study Christian biographies, some of the greatest men and women in the history of Christianity arose at 4 a.m. to seek the Lord. If the morning's not the time for you, Cool but when is, because there is a time to seek the Lord. Now, what we find the children of Israel having to do, Joshua gets up early. We find them now in that position of waiting once again. Look again as we continue reading in uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim or the grove of Acacia, and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp. So they were camped out, and I showed you the, the map last week at this place called uh, Shittim, which is another word for the, the Acacia wood. And, and they were camped out at that place, and it's just a couple miles journey to the Jordan River. And so they leave that place now, the spies having returned from Joshua 2, and they go to the Jordan River. And it says that they're there in verse 2 for three days. Once again, in the book of Joshua, they find themselves waiting on the Lord. Now, we've already talked about this in our study of the book of Joshua. And you're saying, Britt, you're not going to give us another message on waiting on the Lord, are you? Well, I'm just being biblical. I'm just going, they had to wait on the Lord in Joshua 1, and they're waiting on the Lord in Joshua 3. Wake up, be hello, that's life waiting on the Lord. But, but look at the intensity of this time of waiting now. They're not away from the Jordan. They're at the Jordan. 500 years of Bible prophecy is it about, about to be fulfilled when they finally go into Canaan. What Moses and the Exodus generation could not accomplish, they are now going to accomplish by the grace of God. There is such an enormity to this moment. And there is such a thrust to get over the Jordan. And such a desire. And such a push for it. And don't think that this is haphazard. This is the design of God. That He says, break your camp some miles away. And come right to the banks of the Jordan River. And camp out here for three days. I'll tell you what was happening during that time. First of all, when when they were coming to the Jordan... They knew in the back of their minds, hey, we, don't, we ain't got no boats, man. Did you break a boat? I didn't bring a boat. Anybody make boats? We didn't make no boats. Two and a half million people probably by this time, anyway. Anybody got a really big boat? No big boat. Okay, Noah's Ark, maybe nothing. They know there's no bridges over the Jordan. And they know that it's a harvest season, and so the Jordan is flooding. It's over its banks. It's worst case scenario to cross the Jordan, yet they know they're going to do it. They know there's no boats. They know there's no bridge, they know that it's overflowing, that it's raging, that it's moving. It's worst case scenario and they're hiking toward it. Just believing the Lord. They didn't know how the Lord would get them across and guess what? It wasn't any of their business at that moment. When the Lord wanted it to be their business, the Lord would tell them. If the Lord doesn't tell you, it means it's not your business. It wasn't their business. Their business was to obey and go and camp on the shore, on the bank of the Jordan. And for three days, they would stare at that thing. Oh, man. And you know, all the MacGyvers from Israel, the MacGyvers would come forward. Now, Joshua, I think we could, you know, and they would have all these plans and then there'd be people jumping in and trying to swim in, and everybody would be trying to devise a way. And I just imagine that it took three days for them to exhaust their ingenuity. Three days for them to exhaust all their ideas, all the possibilities. Three days for any hope they had in themselves to expire. Three days to notice how overwhelming the challenge before them was. God brought them where they could see it and said, now sit here and watch it. It was God bringing them to the place of knowing that they didn't know and understanding that they couldn't understand and realizing that they wouldn't be able to do. And so God sat them there at the foot of the problem for three days and just said, look at it it's too much, it's too big, you can never do it. Now Jesus did the same thing in the New Testament with Lazarus. You remember in John chapter 11? John chapter 11, uh, there's a cat named Lazarus and he had a sister, Mary and Martha. You know about Mary and Martha. Okay, don't read that. You know, uh, Mary and Martha, they had a brother, Lazarus, and Lazarus got sick. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that Jesus hung out at the house of Mary and Martha, and so he knew Lazarus and was friends, so on and so forth. And Jesus was in another city doing ministry. And Mary and Martha sent a letter to Jesus, sent a message to him saying, the one whom you love is sick. They didn't even have to name him. He would read it and go, Martha and Mary, the one I love, Lazarus, is sick. And, and look what It says, in, in John 11, verses 5 and 6. This is astounding. Hello. Okay. Here's what it says. Wow. Okay. I'll, I'll read it to you. John 11, verses 5 and 6. Catch this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore... When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. Wait a minute. Lazarus is sick. Martha and Mary send a letter saying Jesus, Lazarus... Obviously, they're expecting that the moment Jesus gets a letter, He's going to come and heal Lazarus. That's what they want. They want Jesus to come now and to heal now. And it says that because He loved them... He stayed where he was. Because he loved them, he didn't go at that moment. Well, you know what happened in the story. Lazarus died. Jesus refused to come. He didn't come. He knew the problem. He let them deal, just sit at the problem, just looking at Lazarus sick, just staring at the Jordan. Where is the Lord? The Lord doesn't come because he loved them. When Jesus finally comes, Lazarus has been dead for four days. He waits until he dies. And then he waits until he's been dead four days. The reason is because the Jews at that time believed that the Spirit would depart the body after the third day and then it was for sure over. That was a popular belief at the time. So Jesus wanted to make sure once again that they knew that it was over. Lazarus was absolutely dead. There was no hope now. And then, and only then, Jesus comes back to town. And Martha and Mary run to his feet and they say, Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. They're mad at God. They're mad at God. God, you didn't come when we asked you to come. You didn't do what we asked you to do. If you had come when I said come, if you had done what I told you to do, my brother would be alive. Because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. He's dead. Jesus goes over to the grave. He says, roll away the stone. And Martha said, Lord, by this time, there'll be a stench. For he's been dead four days. And the Lord says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus raises from the dead and walks out of the tomb. Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come forth. Cause if he just said, come forth, all of Israel would have raised from the dead. <laughs> Lazarus come forth and he comes out of the tomb. Listen to me. Martha and Mary were hoping for a healing. Jesus Christ wanted to give them a resurrection. He wanted to do more than they expected of Him. He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we ask or think or can even fathom, Ephesians 3.20 says. They wanted a healing. He wanted to give them a resurrection. So many of us in our lives today were saying, Lord, I want you to fix this part of my life. And the Lord says, No, I want to resurrect that part of your life. Lord, I want you to heal my marriage. No, I want to resurrect your marriage. Lord, I want you to heal my teenager. He's nuts. No, I want to resurrect your teenager to new life. The Lord wants to do more. But for the Lord to do that, He first had to bring them face to face with the reality that they could not do that. And so He left them there with their dead brother for four days. And He left them there at the Jordan for three days to realize the enormity of the problem. That when the Lord showed Himself faithful, and He always will, they would then see the enormity of the Lord. That He's greater than the obstacle. That there is nothing that is too difficult for the Lord. Go to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, let's just start reading verse 1, you'll get the point. Psalm 107, verse one. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. Now look what it says in verse 4. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Note the then Then he delivered them out of their distress. He led them also by a straight way to go into an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Verse 10, there were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore He humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled, and there was none to help them. Verse 13, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death, and broke their bands apart. Let them then give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness, and for His wonders, and to the sons of men. For He has shattered gates of bronze, and cut bars of iron asunder." Verse 17, fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Verse 19, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distress. He sent His word. He healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His works with joyful singing. Verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens and they went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man. And were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still. So that the ways of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them then give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. And for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people. And praise him at the seat of the elders. And so it is in life. The Lord will bring you to the Jordan River only to sit you there for three days. He will let you cry to Him about the sickness only to remain where He is for two and four more. That He might show Himself great. That He might prove Himself faithful. Wait a minute but before that part is a part of you crying out on Him. You see, He knows the nature of man. That when things are hunky and dory and we have resources at our fingertips, we seldom call upon the Lord. But when we are brought to our wits end, when we're overwhelmed by sea and by wave and by storm and by chains and bondage and enemy and foe around every corner, it is then and too often only then that we cried to the Lord. And the next sentence in every instance was, and He saved them. And he saved them. And so he's got Israel sitting at the Jordan River dealing with in their mind the enormity of the problem. Getting a clear picture of just how huge the circumstances are in order that they might subsequently get a clear picture of how much greater the Lord is. Second Chronicles 20.12 Israel is being overwhelmed by its enemies. They were outnumbered and they were encircled. And they say, O oh, our God, will thou not judge them? Listen. For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on thee. There's too many, it's too much, I don't have the power, and I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Psalm 123, verses 1 and 2. To thee I lift up my eyes, O thou who art enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look at the hand of their master, as the eye of a maid at the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, until he shall be gracious to us. Psalm 141, verses 8 and 10. For my eyes are toward thee, O God the Lord. In thee I take refuge. Don't leave me defenseless. Keep me from the jaws of the trap which they've set for me. And for the snares of those who do iniquity, let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. The Bible is a history of men and women who have had to deal with overwhelming circumstances, heartbreaking situations, and over and over again, the prescription is, I cried to the Lord, I fixed my gaze on Him, and He was faithful. And if you perceive somehow in your life that God has not been faithful, you are wrong. God is always faithful. The first day that God is not faithful, He is not God throughout the Bible. Don't ever come to church again. He is faithful. Alan Redpath, in his book, Victorious Christian Living, says this, Get a clear view of Him who can deal with the impossibility of your life before you have reached it. For in the name of the Lord Jesus, I declare the truth that however strong it may be, there is no attack of Satan on the child of God, but first has struck the heart of God. He overcame it at the cross and He bids us, His children, to get a clear view of Him to face again the impossibility that we have faced so often. Then look up into His face and say, Now, Lord Jesus, I believe that although I cannot, You can. In that moment, the roar of the Jordan will be silent. Its violence will be checked. And we will go through on dry land. And that is what the Lord is doing with Israel at this moment, is He is wanting to provide for them a clear view of Himself, but it is preceded by a clear view of the circumstances. As it was for Martha and Mary, when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, many therefore in the land believed in Him, and not before And so that is the waiting. And now we encounter the watching. Back to Joshua. As we see them watching the Lord. Joshua chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And they commanded the people saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So they're waiting for three days. And that will bring them to the place of having to watch the Lord lead them. They were to fix their eyes before they would cross to Jordan on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was that representation of the presence of God. It was that place where when placed in the tabernacle of God, the presence of God descended. The glory of God was there. It was that thing which was in the Holy of Holies. It represented in every way truthfully physically tangibly figuratively the presence the power the person of god for israel and what they were to do before they were to cross over the jordan before they could deal with this enormous problem was to fix their eyes on the ark he said to them when you see the ark of the lord go forward then you shall follow it but notice he said that there was to be a space between them, the nation of Israel, and the ark of God, the presence of God, the power, and the person of God represented. There is to be a space of 2,000 cubits. That is 1,000 yards. That is more than half a mile. Why was there to be this space? Why this separation of a half mile when they would go and follow a half mile behind? They had to stay intuitively, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you instinctively begin to think, well, it's because of the holiness of God. They had to keep their distance communicating the holiness of God, but that is not so in this instance, in my opinion. It says that there was to be a distance between them and the ark so that they might know the way that they were to go. Listen, the Lord is so kind, very simply, very practically, logistically speaking, there were about two and a half million Israelites at this time. God wanted every one of them to be able to see the ark, the representation of His presence, because every one of them had seen the Jordan for three days. And so they all needed to see the Lord. And so the Lord said, You stay more than a half mile back. That way, every man, woman, and child in Israel will see my glory as I lead my nation." What God was accomplishing was giving them a clear view of himself and then they would follow the Lord into the land, into and across the obstacle, the problem, that difficulty, the strong flow. It's analogous to you and I fixing our gaze on the author and the perfecter of our faith as Hebrews 12.2 says. It's what Peter was supposed to be doing when Peter walked on the water. What an incredible story. Peter said when Jesus came and calmed the storm, Lord, if it is you, then bid me to come to you. And the Lord said, yeah, I like this guy, Peter. Cool, Peter, come. And Peter stepped out of the boat and he began to walk on the water. The storm having not yet been calmed, by the way. And we know that he had his eyes on the Lord. But it says, when he saw the wind and the waves, then he began to sink. As long as his eyes were fixed on the Lord, the circumstances were superfluous. The circumstances themselves were overwhelmed by the person of Christ. As long as his eyes were fixed on the author and the perfecter of his faith, Peter walked on water. He walked on the very circumstances that threatened his existence all night long. But when he saw the wind and the waves, we're told in Matthew 14, then he began to sink because he got his eyes off the Lord and onto the circumstances and they were overwhelming and he sank right into the midst of them. And he said, Lord, help. And the Lord grabbed him and pulled him up out of the water and said, oh, you of little faith. The Lord is wanting to give the children of Israel, He is wanting to give you and I a clear view of Himself. But it so often comes when we're face to face with the overflowing banks of the Jordan, and not before. And at that time, we fix our gaze on it. We position ourselves, as God positioned the people in the ark, to be able to see the Lord clearly. And when we see the Lord clearly, everything changes. Again, again, Redpath from Victorious Christian Living says this. They had been told to watch the ark as they went through. And they saw only the ark of the covenant. Therefore, as they went through the river, the ark was between them and the possibility. There is exposed all the difference. There is exposed all the difference between the wilderness life of defeat and the life of victory in the land. Between some of us here and the desired blessings flows the river of impossibility. Does shame, human nature, temperament, or pride stand between the land of blessing and the Christian like this flooded Jordan? Then let a child of God get his eyes on the Lord Jesus and then look. Between the impossibility and himself, there he is. After that, the child of God doesn't talk about getting the victory. It isn't the victory he wants, it's the victor. He doesn't speak about striving for new blessing and seeking to enter a new experience because his eyes are on the Lord Jesus and he puts the Lord Jesus between himself and the onslaught of the devil and he looks up into his face and there is victory. That is glorious. That is the victory that we see the Lord that we position ourselves in such a way in spite of circumstances that we're in the face and the presence and with the person of Christ. And when we get into that place, we're no longer crying out for help me victory, this, that I want. He is. The final thing that they did was they washed. Very simply in verse 5, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves. To consecrate very simply means to sanctify. It means to set apart. Set apart yourselves. We've waited. We're going to watch and see the Lord. It's going to happen tomorrow. So what you need to do today is set yourself apart. It's the idea of removing ourselves from the mundane and the profane and and purposing ourselves to be useful to the holy. Consecrate yourselves. Set yourself apart today because tomorrow the Lord is going to do wonders among you. You know, I think if we had more todays of concentration, we would have more tomorrows of wonder. I think we sometimes miss out on the the wonderful and the miraculous and the fullness of the moving of God tomorrow because there's no consecration today. The prescription was tomorrow God's going to do a miraculous thing, so consecrate yourselves today. Now very practically in that time, in that moment, in that religious culture, it meant that they were to wash their bodies and change their clothes. It seems a very small thing to you and I, but in that day water was a precious commodity. And they did not often wash themselves or use water for that purpose. But bigger than that, throughout the Bible, washing of the body and the changing of the clothes always speaks of a new start with the Lord. A fresh start, a fresh moment of of laying aside that old dirt and those old clothes and starting fresh with the Lord. That's what they were to do, to consecrate themselves, to wash themselves. And then they would be ready for the powerful moving of God. You see, in purity, there is power. In purity, there is power. In defilement, we are void of experiencing that power. In purity, there is power. We would have more tomorrows of power if we had more todays of purity. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord is going to do wonders among you. Now the Lord Jesus Christ, He consecrates us by His blood. Positionally, we are washed clean and we are set apart. But there remains in the New Testament this picture of us washing ourselves. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Romans 12, 11 through 14. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing in drunkenness, nor in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh with regards to its lusts. And finally, 1 John 3.3. 3 speaking of the coming of the Lord Jesus for the church, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he is pure. Church, the Lord is wanting to take us into the land and the prescription is, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow he will do wonders among us. Set ourselves apart for the holiness of God. Put off the filth. Put off that old stuff. It's not befitting of a child of God anymore. Put on the Christ Jesus and the fullness of him. Consecrate yourselves. There was the waiting, the watching, and the washing. We are at this moment waiting for the turn of, return of Jesus Christ. We are to be watching the signs of the times because it's evident if you have the Bible and you have the news. And therefore, we are to purify ourselves even as he is pure, for the Lord is coming for his bride. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Your plans and your purposes and your ways are marvelous. And we just don't want to miss them, Lord. So we're asking right now as we seamlessly move into this flow of worship and waiting and just saturating in your presence that you would continue to speak to us. We don't want to miss what you want to do tomorrow because of our silliness today. We want to consecrate ourselves. We want to wash, cleanse and purify ourselves even as you are pure. Thank you for the blood of Christ that washes and cleanses us but we want to bring the practical in line with the positional now. We want to put those things off and we want to put you on. The Jordan is overflowing before us. There's insurmountable odds and circumstances, but our gaze is fixed on you. We turn our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter, the faithful one.